would turn with me in a Bible to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Uh, that is page number, page numbers in the bulletin. It is page 959 in the Pew Bibles. So this is one of, one of the accounts of Jesus' birth. And uh, let me read... Read that for us, Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I think one of the most profound experiences that a human being can have is to witness the beginning of another human life. Mm -hmm. From the initial realization that she's pregnant, through the months of preparation as the baby develops, uh, to the moment of birth, there's a sense of wonder at the fragility and the beauty of human life. Now, I, sometimes the birth of a particular child seems particularly unusual or providential. I think of some unusual births of uh, people, that, uh, people that I am aware of. I know a couple who got married and they're uh, mid-40s, perhaps even late-40s, they thought they were past the age of childbearing, had no expectation, and soon afterwards, they had a son. Uh, another couple for years thought they were infertile, uh, now have multiple children. I think of some children who were born several weeks premature, uh, but survived with the help of modern technology. I think of uh, uh, children born after a previous miscarriage or stillbirth. Now, each one of these births were unusual in certain respects, but the reality is every time that a child is born into the world, something amazing and extraordinary has happened. Most things that have happened over the past 12 years I have long since forgotten, but I have distinct memories of the births of each of our three children. Now, sometimes we are surprised and rightly grieved uh, by the experience of a miscarriage or a stillbirth. That can be a deep sorrow. But perhaps we should be even more amazed every time that any child is born, considering all the perils that attend the development of the tiniest human lives from the beginning onwards. Now this morning we're looking at Matthew's account of the conception and birth of Jesus. And Matthew wants us to know that of all the unusual births, that have happened in human history. The birth of Jesus was the most unusual of all. 
The conception and birth of Jesus wasn't just unusual, it wasn't just providential, not just amazing and awe-inspiring, it was supernatural and miraculous. So Matthew claims. Verse 18 begins, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now the Greek word translated birth there is Genesis, same word used uh, for the first book of the Bible, it means origin or beginning. Uh, so Matthew is telling us here about Jesus' origins, Jesus' beginnings. And if you look at the first half of Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives a long list of names, a long genealogy that emphasizes Jesus' human origins, that uh, he came from the genealogical line of Abraham and David. Matthew traces his origins down through the history of Israel. Uh, but here, in the second half of the chapter, Matthew emphasizes Jesus' divine origin. Uh, verse 18 says, now, or but, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And by that phrase, in this way, Matthew is making a contrast between all the other births that happen in history and the birth of Jesus. Now, if you look at the genealogy, the list of names from verses 1 to 17, there's 42 names, and uh, the genealogy follows a typical pattern. A was the father of B, was the father of C, was the father of D. Occasionally, in circumstances where the births were unusual, the mother is also mentioned. But at the end of the genealogy, Matthew breaks the pattern. So if you look at verse 16, Matthew says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, or Messiah. So Matthew carefully avoids saying that Joseph was Jesus' father. He's alerting us to something unusual. He's saying... The birth of Jesus Christ took place in a supernatural and miraculous way. And throughout this second half of the chapter, Matthew emphasizes this. So verse 18, he says, before Joseph and Mary came together, she was found to be with child. Verse 20, the angel says to Joseph, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And verse 24, Joseph took his wife. Uh, but knew her not, that is, they had no intimate relations until she had given birth to a son. So repeatedly, Matthew's pointing out that Jesus, the child Jesus, did not originate in the normal human way. Uh, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So this is something Christians have throughout history, sort of always and everywhere believed ever since the beginnings of Christianity. But this morning, I want us to consider two questions. Number one, was this really true? And second, why does it matter? Right? First of all, was this really true? Right? Does the virgin birth make sense? Uh, ever since the beginning of Christianity, many people have been skeptical of the idea that Jesus was born of a virgin. Right? Most of us, if somebody comes up to us and says, and claims that there was a virgin birth, we would be quite skeptical, rightly skeptical, right? So, uh, so I want to take a few minutes to address some of the most common objections that uh, have been made to this idea. Uh, some people today say a virgin birth is scientifically impossible, right? How could a woman with XX chromosomes give birth to a man with XY chromosomes apart from any male involvement? Uh, and some people have uh, tried to search for a scientific explanation of how this could happen, even looking for parallels in animals. Uh, but that's really very unnecessary and, and sort of misguided because Matthew's not saying that 
something very unusual or statistically unlikely just happened to happen here. Um, he's not saying that God used a set of previously unrecognized natural processes to produce a statistically unlikely outcome. His claim is that the God who made the world chose to intervene in a unique way in it. In other words, Matthew's saying God acted supernaturally, miraculously. God did something that would never have happened in the normal course of events. Now, if you believe in the God that the Bible describes, or if you believe really in any kind of God, or even if you're agnostic, right, you can't totally rule out the possibility of divine intervention in principle. You have to at least say, well, I mean, I don't know everything, so perhaps there might be something that happens that isn't what I would expect or isn't what I could explain. I mean, we, have, we at least have to acknowledge that we don't have, have complete knowledge. There's a lot more that we don't know than that we do know. Uh, and so you sort of have to evaluate these claims on a case-by-case -case basis, right? Now, we shouldn't believe just anybody who comes to us saying, I've seen a miracle, or I've had a dream, or God has spoken to me, right? Lots of people make those claims. And if we believe the Bible, it doesn't mean that we should believe everything that everybody says. No, the Bible encourages us to be discerning. Evaluate on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, don't just dismiss all such claims out of hand. It's not that they never happen, uh, but don't just believe them all without being thoughtful about them. So the right question isn't, is the virgin birth of Christ possible? We have to say, okay, it's possible. Um, but we can't totally rule it out. But a better question is this, is it fitting? Right? Does it make sense? Is it consistent with what we know about the character of God? Does it make sense that God would do such a thing? Now, some people say, no, it doesn't make sense that God would do anything like that. Uh, some people say, so here's a few ideas. So some people say the idea of the virgin birth sounds like a pagan legend from the ancient world. Aren't there legends about pagan gods who take on the bodies of men or animals and seduce women and produce demigods as a result? Well, yes, you can find such stories in the ancient world. Uh, but those stories read like modern soap operas. <laughs> They're full of sensational details and wild speculations. They're not spiritually very edifying or helpful. Matthew's story isn't like that at all. God the Father does not take on a human body and seduce a woman in order to produce a semi-divine son. That's not at all what happened. Matthew's actually very matter-of-fact. He just says, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Very different than the, the other stories, the pagan stories that were around in those days. Now other people say, well, what about other supposedly miraculous births? Weren't there other stories of you know, great figures in the ancient world who supposedly had a miraculous birth? Well, uh, Alexander the Great, so the legend goes, was supposedly conceived by Zeus, and he claimed to be a son of the gods, but the legends about Alexander's birth were written about 400 years after he died. So that would be like somebody coming up with a new story that has never been heard before about one of the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth 400 years ago. Well, if you haven't heard it for 400 years, probably, probably not true. Uh, but the Gospel of Matthew, the book we're reading, was written at most 50 or 60 years after Jesus' crucifixion, perhaps even before that. And most scholars believe that Matthew was drawing on earlier traditions. Uh, and Matthew is also the most Jewish of the Gospels. He, even here, he quotes 
uh, from the Old Testament. He quotes several times, more than any other gospel from the Old Testament. Uh, he's writing particularly to people who knew the Old Testament and had that kind of background. So he's probably getting his traditions from Jerusalem and Judea, which was where uh, the Jewish Christian movement was started. Now, the main leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem for the first 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion was Jesus' half-brother, James. Now, legends about miraculous birth stories don't usually crop up if family members are there to say, no, we know how it <laughs> happened. It didn't happen that way. Right? Uh, now, other people say, here's another idea out there. Uh, other people say, Matthew made up the idea of a virgin birth because he read some Old Testament prophecies, like the one he quotes in verse 23, and then he sort of created a story that would make out of the prophecies, right? Sort of projecting the prophecies into the future, into his story. But here's an interesting fact. Prior to Matthew, we have no evidence that anyone interpreted the verse that he quotes here as a prophecy of a literal virgin birth. It's one of the prophecies that has sort of an immediate fulfillment and a longer-term fulfillment. Um, uh, but back, back then, people weren't reading Isaiah 7, verse 14, and thinking, one day, there's going to be this child who's born of a virgin woman with no male involvement. That's not how they understood the prophecy. So why would Matthew take a verse that no one had previously understood in this way and then make up a story around it? It doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense reverse that something actually happened, and then Matthew looks back at this prophecy and says, wait a minute, that was pointing forward to this. Right, there's so many things in life that we only see in hindsight, right? Or we see a lot more clearly in hindsight. And we don't expect when they're coming down the pike at us. And that's sort of uh, what this story very much seems like. Um, uh, in light of the coming of Jesus, a lot of the prophecies that people sort of knew were important in one way or another make sense in an even clearer way. So those are some reasons why people reject the virgin birth of Jesus, but you might say, well, are there any positive reasons to actually believe this? Uh, does it make sense, given what, given what the Bible tells us about the character of God? Well, uh, imagine for a moment, imagine if you're one of the first readers of the Gospel of Matthew. Again, Matthew wrote to uh, primarily uh, people with a Jewish background who knew the Old Testament stories. And in the Old Testament, there are several times where uh, God's people find themselves up a creek without a paddle, or between a rock and a hard place. And God shows his kindness to his people and his faithfulness to his promises by sending a promised child just in time to deliver them. So, a few examples. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, founders of the nation of Israel, they had left everything they'd ever known. God had promised they'd have a son. They were very old, long past the age of childbearing, until God provided them with a son, Isaac, who carried on not only the family name, but also the promise of God. A few hundred years later, the people of Israel were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh wanted to exterminate them, and baby Moses was born. And under God's protection, he uh, 
was kept safe, preserved through a genocide, and grew up to deliver God's people. Again, a couple hundred years later, the people are being attacked by the Philistines, and the Lord comes, the angel of the Lord appears to a previously infertile couple, and he tells them, You'll have a son, and his name is Samson, and Samson helped for a time to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. So, on many occasions, God's people find themselves in desperate circumstances, and God intervenes. He shows his kindness and his faithfulness by sending a child who would grow up to be a deliverer just in time. And so, if you have that in the background, and if you believe, if you think, well, God's done that several times before, and you read this account, you think, well, maybe God's doing it again in an even more amazing and miraculous way than before. Right? That's what Matthew's saying. Uh, and so Matthew's first readers would have said, yeah, that sounds like the God we've heard about before. That sounds like the God we've come to believe in, who comes to rescue his people just in time. Mm. And so Matthew says, look, here's the one true God showing his kindness, showing his faithfulness through the greatest gift of all. And just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the chaotic waters in the beginning of creation and brought life out of the formless emptiness, now the Holy Spirit is alive and active in bringing Jesus, the Messiah, into the world. I mean, think about it this way. Of all the unusual births that have happened in human history, wouldn't it be fitting that the birth of the Messiah himself would be the most unusual and supernatural of all? So that's the first point. Does the virgin birth make sense? I would argue that it does. But then we have to ask, so why does this matter? What difference does it make? You know, at its core, when we say uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, what we're saying is that Jesus, the Savior, is both fully divine and fully human. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully divine, and born of the Virgin Mary, fully human. Uh, and we see both Jesus' divine nature and his human nature in the two names that are given to him in this passage. So in verse 21 says you shall call his name Jesus. Now Jesus is the uh, Latin version of the Hebrew name Joshua. So it could be translated just as well Joshua. Um, that's how it would be pronounced Yeshua in Hebrew. Uh, uh, Jesus is just the Latinized form of that. Um, but Joshua is a very common name in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, so you think of uh, Joshua as Moses' successor who led the people of Israel into the Promised Land. There was another guy named Joshua after the exile, after the people had been scattered far away, and they came back home, and he was the new high priest in the temple. Um, uh, so the name Jesus or Joshua at one level emphasizes Jesus' connection to these Joshuas who come before his human nature. He has a name uh, that others have shared. But the name Jesus also points to his divine nature because the meaning of Joshua is the Lord saves. That's what the Hebrew word Joshua means. The Lord saves. And verse 21 says, he will save his people from their sins. Now, as human beings, we have all kinds of, we have to face all kinds of problems. Right? Sickness and pain, 
tiredness, hunger, loneliness, grief, relational conflicts, unfulfilled longings. But our sins, that is everything that keeps us alienated from God or far away from God, or everything that sort of corrupts us morally and spiritually from the inside out, according to the Bible, that's the most, that's the deepest and most intractable human problem. It's not just the problems that are more on the surface that can be solved more immediately. Uh, not just the frustrations of life, but our sins that separate us from God and prevent us from being who God made us and called us to be. Psalm 130 verse 8 says, The Lord himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And that's who Jesus is, the Lord himself who has come to save us from our sins, from the things that separate us from God and to reconcile us with God. Now the second name given to Jesus is, is in verse 23, where it says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And again, Emmanuel indicates both Jesus' divine nature, he's God, but also his human nature, God with us. Now verse 23, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Matthew changes one word. So Isaiah, verse 7, uh, Isaiah 7, 14, it says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. But when Matthew quotes it, he changes one word. Did you notice the word he changed? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they <coughs> shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew's saying, it's not just Mary who can call Jesus God with us. Right? Jesus didn't just come to be God with Mary. No, Matthew's saying all of us, they, all of God's people, all of us can know Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Not only his mother, but everyone who believes in him can know Jesus as God who has come to dwell with us. J.C. Ryle, who is a British preacher, century or two ago, put it this way. He wrote, if we would have a strong foundation for our faith and hope, we must keep constantly in view our Savior's divinity. He's the almighty God. All power is his in heaven and on earth. And therefore, our heart need not be troubled or afraid. And he goes on, he says, if we would have sweet comfort in suffering and trial, we must keep constantly in view our Savior's humanity. He lay in his mother's bosom as a little infant. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He has experienced temptations. He has endured hunger, shed tears, felt pain. He can sympathize with his people. You see, that's why it matters that Jesus is both divine, fully divine, and fully human. That we can trust him and rely on him as our rock and our strength, and that we can come draw near to him as our sympathetic advocate. Now think about what some of the implications would be if Jesus had come into the world in some other way. Right, what if God had instead chosen to send Jesus into the world without being born at all? He just shows up, sort of like angels show up, as a, like a fully formed adult. What if Jesus had just bypassed the long years of childhood? I mean, after all, we don't really know much of what happened in his life for almost 30 years. What if Jesus had just shown up at the age of 30 or 33 and gone right to the cross? 
and died there for our sins. In that case, though, he would have had no human parents, so he would have been neither a son of David nor a son of Abraham, so he wouldn't have fulfilled many of the Old Testament prophecies. But even, even more than that, if Jesus only sort of parachuted in and walked around for a year or two or a day or two, could we really say Jesus has been made like his brothers and sisters in every respect? Hebrews 2.17 says that. Or he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. <laughs> I mean, think about this. If you're, most of the children have gone to children's church, but if you're a child living at home with your parents, let me ask you this question. You ever feel like your parents don't completely understand you? No. Or maybe they've forgotten what it's like to be your age. Well, the Bible says Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be your age. Because he was once your age, too. And Jesus never forgets anything, unlike the rest of us who forget lots of things as time goes along. Jesus hasn't forgotten what it's like. He knows what it's like to be your age. He knows the challenges you face. He's always available to help you, and every one of his commands are good for you. Jesus died on the cross for the youngest all the way to the oldest. And so however old or young you are, Jesus invites you to talk to him in prayer, and he promises to always listen. Or think about another possibility. Okay, so what if Jesus had come to the world in the normal way? With the seed of a human father, the egg of a human mother, and then later on he was anointed by the Holy Spirit like King David was. So this is what many people say who find the virgin birth too hard to swallow but they still want to believe that Jesus was somehow special. But again, that idea creates big problems. For one thing, it would mean that both Matthew and Luke are lying to us, or at the very least, carelessly passing on unreliable tales about Jesus' origins. Even more than that, if Jesus, if Jesus was conceived in the normal human way, then the Savior of the world would be a joint human effort. And Mary and Joseph could say, we produce the Messiah, just the two of us. But that's the reverse of the whole message of the Bible. Because the whole message of the Bible is that God sent Jesus because we couldn't fix our own problems. Because we couldn't achieve our own redemption. Because we needed God himself to come and intervene and help us where we couldn't help ourselves. You see, God's grace, when the Bible talks about God's grace or his generosity or his gifts to us, that's not just the frosting on the cake, and the cake is our human accomplishments. It's not just a little thing added on top. God's salvation in the Bible is a generous and undeserved gift. It's something we don't deserve, again, when all human efforts have fallen short and failed to produce the redemption that we hoped for. God's salvation is carried out by the power of the Holy Spirit within all those who, like Joseph and Mary, simply receive his word and respond to it with trust and obedience. An early Christian writer who, we don't even know this person's name, but he wrote this. Humanity is born out of the necessity to exist. If you were writing today's language, you might say human beings reproduce out of the struggle to survive. But then he goes on and says, Christ, however, 
was not born out of the necessity of nature to exist, but by his merciful will to save. That's what the virgin birth shows us, God's merciful will to save us. Not just the necessity of nature to exist, but God's merciful will to save. Back in the third century, another guy named Origen put it this way, his birth was both like ours and above ours. To be born of woman is like our birth, but to be born not of the will of the flesh or of man is above ours. There is here a hint, a prior announcement of a future birth to be bestowed on us by the Holy Spirit. So here's what he's getting at. He's saying because Jesus came into the world in a supernatural way, the salvation that Jesus gives us is a supernatural gift. And just as Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a mysterious way, in a miraculous way, when we are brought to new life in Jesus, God can do a miraculous, reviving work within our hearts in a wonderful and mysterious and life-giving way. And that's good news. You know, many leaders in the early church put it this way. They said, Jesus has taken on all that was ours our humanity, our sin, and even our death, in order to share with us all that was his, his divinity, his righteousness, and his life. He's taken on all that was ours to share with us all that was his. Let me ask, have you received that? Have you said, yes, Jesus, I want all that's yours. I'll give you all that's mine. And if you have, that's a reason to rejoice. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this story that's been preserved for us. That speaks to us of how your son came into the world in a supernatural and miraculous way. Lord, we pray that uh, we would ponder these truths in our minds, reflect on them in our hearts. Pray that we'd be encouraged knowing that you are both fully divine, strong to save, and fully human, full of love and mercy. We pray that that would encourage us to draw near you. In this Christmas season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.